All right, so we've been walking through Ephesians. We are on chapter 6, and I kind of feel like we've been gorging ourselves on Ephesians, and there's still a lot to digest. There's a lot of information, and this week, again, continues in that. And so my hope is that you would continue uh, to dig into Ephesians, to read into it um, in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, but this main question we've been asking every single week is, is how do you identify yourself? How do you define yourself uh, as a person? You know, I, I imagine that, Many of the identifiers that we have, um, that, that we had six weeks ago when we began all this, are probably the same today. There probably hasn't been much change as far as the ways in which we identify ourselves. Now maybe if we go back to uh, a few weeks past, we talk about there's things in our lives that we need to take off, and those new things we need to put on in Christ. When we're saying, I want to be found in Christ, we need to take off certain things that would not be the way that God would want us to live, and then replace that with, with a, way, a new way in Christ. So sure, maybe there's a few identifiers in your life in that sense that these have been taken off. But I would imagine as a whole, we still identify ourselves as a husband or or a wife, as a mother or a father, as a sibling or a friend or an American or Italian or whatever, you know, Swedish, Norwegian, whatever your nationality is. We probably still have all these same identifiers. And so why have we spent six weeks on this? Well, my hope has been that we would have restructured and reordered these different ways we identify ourselves. And that we would have knocked them all down and put Christ first and say, above all else, I identify myself in Christ. And then we've learned a little more what that means each week. One of the things it means is, is that being in Christ doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we're forgiven and being perfected. There's this process that we're walking through. Christ has already come and done a work in our life, uh, but he's not yet completed that work. And, and so um, we're forgiven uh, the ways we'd go against God, and we're being perfected, but it, it's this process. And so in that process, we want to continue to put God first and, and be found in Christ. Uh, if you could real quick, uh, and this is different than a meet and greet, so we really got real clear instructions. I want to give you about two minutes, and I want you to find someone uh, either you don't know or you don't know all that well, and I want you to introduce yourself. However you would do that, if you're out in public, out at a, you know, you're at a friend's house and, and they had another friend come over you didn't know and you introduce yourself, imagine that's the scenario. And just take a minute to introduce yourself and then let them introduce themselves to you. And then we'll come back, we'll talk about it. So take two minutes, introduce yourself, go. If you haven't switched already, go ahead and switch because I'm going to have to cut you off here soon. Let the other person introduce themselves. All right, I'm going to start cutting you off, start making your way back to your seat. And and as you do, uh, think about this. What were some of the questions that you asked? What are some of the things that you want to know? Go ahead, shout them out real quick. 
Do you live around here? Okay, where do you live? What else might you have asked? Pardon? Okay, how, how you found Meadowland? Okay, what else? Someone, I, I am fishing for an answer. I'll, I'll be honest about that. And where do you work? Okay, what was that one? What was your name? Awesome. Okay, we got them. Those are the two I was looking for. Uh, now, it may not have happened in this moment, but it, more and more we introduce ourselves and get to know new people. Very quickly in the conversation, uh, I imagine two things come to light very quickly. One, one being, what's your name? You know, maybe you just start off saying, hey, I'm Steve, and so that gets out there right off the bat. Um, and so there's an introduction of our name. But one of the other things I think we're very quick to either ask or to share is, what do you do? So what do you do? It can be an honest and genuine question, and I think it actually reveals a lot about who we are, and that's what we want to know. What do you do? What do you find yourself doing with your time? It's a common question because we find significance as a people in what we do. What we accomplish is rewarding, it's fulfilling, it's invigorating, and there's a reason why we do it. You know, you, I don't know if you're like me, but when I was growing up, I had like all these different things I wanted to do, and I still kind of do. I always kind of thought, you know, if I was like an Old Testament character and could live to be like 937, um, I, I'd want, okay, these hundred years I'll be a pastor, these hundred years I'll be this, and these hundred years, you know, I wish I could like break it up and, and, and try all these different things. And uh, at one part of my life, I kind of saw my, myself going into the world of, of math and science, which either meant, you know, in, in the, the medical industry, uh, in the medicine, or going into engineering of some sort, whether it be uh, on a design level or an architect or something like that. But those are some of the roads I saw myself walking and really just some, some different changes in trajectory. Next thing I know, I find myself um, at Bible College studying to be a youth pastor and just really uh, had a heart to reach uh, youth with the gospel. And God has since expanded that just to share the gospel with, with all people. And as followers of Christ, hopefully we all have that heart. Um, but there was an opportunity that I had to make that my profession and my love of sharing God with others uh, was greater than my love of, of math and science. And if you know me, that, that, that was a pretty uh, great love for math and science. And just, um, so I'm excited about what I do. There's some significance. It's a part of who I am. It's an appropriate way to identify ourselves by the things that we do. Uh, I need to pause real quick and just clarify. When we're talking about identifying ourselves by our work, um, it's not as easy as just who we receive a paycheck by. Because there's, there's many of us that do a job that does not receive a paycheck. If you said, hey, I, I'm the spouse that stays home and cares for the kids, you have a job. You may not receive a paycheck for it, you should, <laughs> but that, that you have a role. Now, someone can say, okay, this is my job, I get a paycheck from it, here's my boss, and here's how it works out. So maybe you're retired. So I don't have a job, I'm not retired. You have a job. I have people in my life who are retired who, who are, um, I would say, are, are, maybe it's not their responsibility, but they're responsible for bringing about a lot of life change in my own life. They've, they've grown me as a man of God as they've invested in me and invested, I've seen them invest in others. And so even if you're retired, you have a role, you have a job. As, as followers of Christ, we have a job, and that's what we're going to see here this morning. And so is it appropriate to identify ourselves by our job? Well, I think in some ways it tells uh, a little bit about who we are. And then when we hear what people do, maybe, maybe there's some stereotypes that come to mind, or maybe you have some experiences with people from that industry, and we begin to, okay, I wonder if they're like that. We begin to see, okay, what does this tell me about who they are? But what's important about how we identify ourselves or others by our work is that it cannot be primary. If we are first and foremost identified by our work and pursuing success in that work, we're setting ourselves up for failure. 
Because there will come a day, whether in the near future or further down the road, where success will escape us. Where we won't get that next promotion. We won't make that next accomplishment. We won't get that next raise. We're overwhelmed by the challenges of our role. We'll begin to beat ourselves up saying, I'm just not good enough. I'm not making the cut. And if we find ourselves ultimately in, in our job, we'll be left wanting. We'll be left with our, our world shaken. But if we find ourselves first in Christ, we have a stable foundation that will actually inform and lead us in how we live in the rest of our lives. So there's a big difference between pursuing success at work, what that looks like, and success in our, in our faith with Christ. I would argue that success in a faith with, with Christ looks like faithfulness. Trusting in God and being faithful to what he calls us to do. And the beautiful thing about that is uh, I understand that we still make mistakes and we still sin and we can repent and turn from those and go the other way, go towards God. And we can be faithful in that repentance. So even when we, when we make mistakes, there's an opportunity to, to, to show our heart for God and, and to be faithful to him. And I would argue that's a success. That, that's what brings about life change. And so if we are going to put Jesus first, if we're going to be found first and foremost in Christ before anything else, how do we do that when it comes to the workplace? Where you have all these positions of authority, you have bosses, your boss has a boss, and your boss has a boss, and each one's telling you something a little different about what to do, you know, okay, who do I listen to? Or, uh, there's just different uh, positions of authority, and I think this applies to other aspects of life, any aspect where there's authority, but one of the things we need to do when we place Jesus first is we need to place Jesus above all other authorities in our life. We place him above all the authorities. It's okay, Steve, does that mean I can tell off my boss because I can say, no, I'm following Jesus, I'm not following you. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about that. I think we'll have some uh, instruction for our lives as far, to, as far as when he's first, here's how we live under authority of others. Uh, open your Bibles if you got them. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be uh, closing up the series this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. It may seem like an odd place to start when we see the context. It's talking about children and parents. But in one way, uh, there is a sense of uh, what is the role of a child. It's, it's to be a kid. It's to grow. It's to learn. Uh, you know, to go to school and all those different kinds of things uh, under the, the leadership, the authority of their parent. And so uh, this does give us some instruction. And then we're going to continue on into verse 5 and on where we see the role of servants and masters. And we'll see, uh, again, some, some things we can glean from that but what it means to be putting Christ first. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Again, if you need a Bible, you can take one of these home. Take two, however many you need. If you want to give some away, uh, please take these Bibles and, and put them into people's hands. Uh, we would love to see the Word of God uh, in front of each person. Uh, it will be on the screen as well. If you want to turn on your Bible and go digital, uh, we fully support that too as well. Any way you can get God's Word in front of you is, is a blessing. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So children, parents are your authority. Parents, we are the authority of our kids. And if we're following what Paul's saying here, to put Christ first in our lives means that we should obey our parents because Jesus commands it. And so see how that works? So we put Jesus first, we're found in Christ, and he would say, obey your authorities. That, that's his heart. And I, I go as far, and you can you know, argue with, with the wisdom of this, but I think it's biblical. I, I go as far with my own kids uh, to say, hey, 
do you know why you should listen to daddy? And you can make all kinds of uh, logical reasons. Well, uh, daddy's got more experience and he's, he's got some wisdom behind him. And, um, you know, he, he's you know, brought you in this world. He can bring you out, whatever your mom used to say to you. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you, you can reason all those different kinds of things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the only reason that I would say holds water that, that, that consistently is firm and a foundation for us to build our lives on uh, is that God says, obey your parents in the Lord. That's why our kids should obey us. Because God has set up, God is our ultimate authority. He said, this is how the family structure works. Parents are in the position of authority over their kids. So obey your parents in the Lord, children. So does that mean as those in the authority, us parents have a free pass, we can do whatever we want? No. We are also under the authority. We submit ourselves to the authority of God. Verse 4, our fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of of the Lord. So when we place Christ first, when we found in Christ, that would cause us to obey the authorities in our life. We're going to see that here in Ephesians 6. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The end there is basically talking about both the servant and the master are under the authority of Christ. And so again, we see in the same way that parents are, are, need to submit to the, the authority of Christ as masters, you know, probably a present day uh, uh, picture of this would be a boss, would then also need to submit themselves uh, to the authority of Christ. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, if you're reading from the ESV, it says bond servants. Uh, if you read if you're the, the NIV, the, the, the New International Version, uh, there's a Greek word there, doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos, and they translate it as slave. And um, there's actually multiple accounts throughout the New Testament where you see doulos, and sometimes it's as servant or as bond servant, and sometimes as slave. And I need to clarify, this is a different uh, a slavery than we would see in our history. Um, yes, I'm sure back in, in the time where this was written that there was also uh, a misuse of the, the, the system and um, a mistreating of others, and we don't see a support of this in Scripture. What we're seeing is an acknowledgement of what was happening in the culture, and here's how we honor God within the midst of that. And we're going to see, you know, in an example I'm going to give here in a moment, how we begin to see a redemption happening within that. But in the culture they find themselves in, there was a, a practice where um, you could voluntarily offer yourself as a bond servant, which is similar to a slave. In essence, you're saying, uh, I, I will work for you, and, and basically I'll be your servant. And in doing so, they could then pay off any debts that they would have or whatever that would be. And as a part of that, you could also uh, buy your freedom. You, you could, uh, through that process, then be able to pay off the debts and then to, to save up money to buy your freedom back. Uh, and it was more of a voluntary um, offering of yourself than it was something you were forced into. And so it's saying if you are a bondservant, uh, that you should work, uh, work as, as if you're working for the Lord. We see that um, in verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Don't just uh, make sure that you're uh, working hard when the boss is around, when, when his eye is upon you, but know that you're working for the Lord. And so in all things, work hard. 
Submit yourselves to God's authority. God would say to obey your master, those that have authority over you. And notice the servant's obedience to God is not conditional on the master's obedience. It's not servants obey your masters if your masters live out verse 9, which says do the same. It says servants obey your masters, masters obey your servants. And in doing so, we're going to see there's an opportunity to reflect Jesus, to show uh, the heart of God as a hard worker. And if we apply this principle to our work, to be able to uh, work as if we're working for the Lord, to be a hard worker under the authority of our boss, uh, it shows that, that we uh, build our lives on Christ. Now, there is a caveat here. I understand that, um, obviously, if an authority in our life is calling us uh, to sin, calling us to do something against the Word of God, maybe someone saying, you know, hey, Erickson, I want you to cut these corners so we can uh, our numbers look better for the quarter. I said, no, I'm I, I, God is my first authority. He, he's my ultimate authority. And so as long as our authorities are, aren't calling us away from the will of God, we, we are to submit to them. And so the same way, you know, uh, parents and children, you know, children obey your parents. Now if your parents are calling you to sin, okay, now th- there's another issue. You're all, your authority is ultimately to God. But he says obey your parents. Servants obey your masters. There's a, another book of the Bible called Philemon. In this book, we have basically the story of you three people. You have Philemon, you have Paul, the apostle, and you have Onesimus. Well, Onesimus was a bondservant of Philemon. And we don't know all the, the, the details. We know the generalities of what happened. Basically, at some point, Onesimus leaves Philemon's care and then ends up with Paul. And somewhere in that transition, Onesimus becomes a brother in Christ. And basically what Paul says is uh, we, we need to um, submit to the authority of this world and that's going to honor and glorify God. And so I'm going to send you back to Philemon. And he actually sends him uh, with a, this letter and this is the letter to Philemon. Basically he says, Philemon, here is Onesimus, our brother in Christ. I'm sending you back. I'm sending him back to you and I pray that you would receive him in the same way you would receive me. This is a brother in Christ. And so again, we begin to see this heart of kind of tearing down some of those old structures, uh, but more so you see this, this a willing submission to an authority because it would glorify God and give him glory. And the hope would be that Philemon would respond accordingly and, and, and offer uh, a freedom or a um, forgiveness to Onesimus and would accept him as a brother in Christ. But we can't dictate our decisions and our actions off of the what-ifs of others and authority over us. We allow God's authority to be primary in our life and make our decisions based off of that. So if we want to put Christ first, even in the workplace, we need to put him above all other authorities and then allow that to influence, to dictate, to, to show us the way that we, we live and, and work. To be people of integrity, people that, that show the heart of God through the way that we work by working hard. And Paul kind of wraps up kind of this, this theme, but also that the whole chapter here is starting in verse 10, the whole book. And so we can see where we can find our strength as we try to really keep our identity first in Christ. To be in Christ above all else uh, it takes some strength. And so verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And, and Paul's going to continue on this heart of being strong in the Lord. He's going to explain that a little more. But we need to pause here for a moment. He's talking about we don't wrestle with uh, um, flesh and blood, but uh, against the schemes of the devil. So we really have to stop and ask, as a follower of Christ, as someone who's trying to be found in Christ, who is our enemy? Is it the people that believe different things that we believe? Is it those who, who don't follow Jesus? Is that our enemy? Well, if we're going to take Ephesians 6 to heart, our enemy is the devil. Our enemy is the devil. But what's sad is so many times we look at the actions of, of Christians worldwide and we see so many times where, where you would think, based off of their actions, that they're living as if their enemy is other people who are far from God. Well, that's not true. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is the devil. He, he's the one the battle is with. The other challenge in all this is I think we as a culture have so fictionalized this character of the devil towards this, this, this little cartoony guy with pointy pointy ears and a red little tail that has a little you know point on the tip and, and you know pitchfork and it's been something that's been you know in sunday morning cartoons but he's a real being do we believe that do we live in that reality that there is is truly a devil out there who'd want to take god's blessing from us who'd want to take god's glory from him well let's let's get to know our enemy a little bit first he's a created being he is not on the same level with god he was created by God. He was an angel who fell from grace. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. And he is not all-present. These are things that God is. But Satan is not. Satan's sin was one of, of pride. where He wanted the worship that was to be attributed to God. He wanted that for himself. And so he and other fallen angels now... They have power in this world and power to tempt us. They can't make us sin. They can tempt us. You even see that uh, when he first enters into the garden in Genesis chapter 3. What's the first thing he does? He tempts Adam and Eve. They take the step of sin, but Satan was the one who tempted them. And so how, how do we stand firm? If, if Satan is our enemy, how do we stand firm? As we're trying to be found in Christ in this world, how do we do that? Ephesians 6, 13 and on. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You're going to see a bunch of these other different articles of clothing. And basically what Paul is saying is, basically, if you want to stand firm in being in Christ, you've got to get ready for it. You've got to dress for it. Okay? That's what he's going to be talking about here. Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So this is a, is a spiritual battle. This all that we talk about our identity being found in Christ, ultimately, it is a spiritual battle. Romans 13, 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we want to stay free from sin, if we want to stay free from the, the, uh, the temptation that Satan would put before us, we need to put on Christ. Again, we see this theme of putting on. And it has this connotation of, of getting dressed. Get dressed in the armor of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. And so alone we're perishable and mortal, but in Christ we're putting on something that's imperishable and immortality. And so Paul gives us this imagery of of a soldier putting on his armor. And it makes sense, because if you remember where Paul's where he is when he is writing this he's in jail he's in prison he's he, he's shackled to a guard he, he sees soldiers all the time and so this imagery you actually see throughout his writings uh of, of being like a soldier and so as we think through these different things what i want you to see is ultimately a huge takeaway we can we can have from this morning's message is that standing firm and being in christ one thing we can do is in the morning when we get ready to go we can be thinking through these things on a spiritual level as we're physically getting dressed. Because we don't leave our pajamas on to go to work. Now, I know there might be a few of you that work from home and say, I get to leave my pajamas on and go to work. But they even say it makes a difference in getting ready for your day, even if you're going from your bedroom to your office, that there's a significance about, okay, I'm putting on my work clothes. I'm getting ready for what I'm about to go and do. And whatever that is, maybe your work day is as a stay-at-home mom. Maybe your work day is in the business world. Maybe your work day is bouncing from meetings or in travel. Maybe your work day isn't doing hard physical labor. But whatever it is, you're going to dress for if it's outside you're going to put on extra layers uh if it's inside you're going to plan for that you're going to put on uh, the right clothing and so as followers of christ if we want to be found in christ we need to put on the armor of god and be clothed for work we need to put on the belt of truth a belt keeps our pants up it keeps things secure there's a central aspect to our belt whether it's just kind of keeping everything in place or we see it even like a batman's utility belt where it has a place to clip all this extra stuff on um, or back in the days of pagers and, and, and cell phone clips you see the guys that have like four different things clipped around the side um, you know it, it's just the central part of, of the uniform keeps things close to where, where you know, the soldier needs them. And, uh, it's this belt that, of truth is what Paul calls it, a belt of truth. And we need to see that. See, Satan's attack against us is with lies. He attacks us with lies. John eight forty four would say that Satan is the father of lies. If we keep reading John and come to chapter 14, verse 6, we see that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Satan attacks with lies, but Jesus is truth. Satan causes the question God's word. In the garden, God says, don't eat of this tree. And Satan says, did God really say that? Yes, he did. That's all Adam and Eve had to say. Yes, God did say, this is true. But they bought into the lies that Satan was saying. See, if we build our life on lies, eventually they'll come crumbling down. In the same way, if we don't have a belt on, eventually we're going to get to an embarrassing moment, getting caught with our pants down. So we need to begin with this belt of truth. And if you've had part of this as a struggle of your life, you know what I'm talking about. Where you've told one lie, and then to keep that from getting covered or uncovered, you've got to tell another lie, but that was to someone else. And then you think you told this person this lie, so you've got to add another. And next thing you know, you've got this house of cards that just one little poof, one little gust of wind, and the whole thing comes crashing down. But if we build our lives on the truth, it's a firm foundation that we're building upon, and it'll stand. 
So put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate guards our core. It covers our heart. See, Satan's attack is to tempt us with our passions and our desires. He says, I know what you're passionate about. I know what you desire. He can see the things of our lives. He can't get inside of our heads, but he can see the things that we do. So he offers us what we desire, but in a way that's contrary to what God would have for us. In Luke 4 and Matthew 4 as well, we see Jesus where he was in the desert for 40 days fasting, and then he's tempted by Satan. And one of those things that Satan says is, hey, look out here and see all this. I'll give you all that if you just worship me. You can have rule and dominion, something that Jesus already had. You can have all this if you just worship me. He was trying to give it to him in a way that wouldn't honor God. I think we see this in, in our sex lives as well, where God has set up, okay, here's where, where sex is beautiful, and how, where it's meant to be held in a marriage between a man and a woman, committed for life. But Satan tempts us with all other kinds of ways to get it, whether it's in our own minds or in other adulterous relationships. But Jesus, so Satan attacks us with temptation. Jesus makes us righteous. He makes us righteous. Think about that. Jesus makes us righteous. I've, had different, I've heard different conversations and debates about, um, as followers of Jesus, are we sinners or are we saints? When I stop and think about that, I would say, well, we're saints that sin. Because Jesus, Jesus has already come. When we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, we, we are made holy and righteous. Scripture would refer to us as a saint. But he's not yet finished his work, and so we're still a work in progress. And so is there still time where we sin and we need to repent and soften our heart and, and turn back to God? Yes, but we are still saints. And so really that repentance is, is coming back to the reality of who we are in Christ, saying, I am righteous in Christ. And so when we put on that breastplate of righteousness, it's almost as if it may cover any scars or anything that we would have uh, um, you know, from just our own way of life. And then we put on this, this perfect breastplate of, of Christ where it's holy and perfect. And all of a sudden, if we begin to dress ourselves that way and, and begin our day with that reality that I'm holy and righteous in Christ, it affects how we live. So then all of a sudden, when you're in the workplace and your boss says, hey, I want you to cut these corners for me, you remember you got that breastplate of holiness on. Say, no, that's not me. That's not who I am. We can put on the shoes of readiness from the gospel of peace. I love this one. The shoes of readiness. I don't know about you, but when I, I visualize things, when I read, I'm a picture guy, I, just, I need to see it. And uh, so it's always weird when you go to movies of a book you've read because you pictured it one way and then you see it a different way. Um, so when I read this, my, my, my shoes have wings on them. I don't know why, but they just do. So the, the shoes of readiness from the gospel piece. I don't know why that had nothing to do with where I'm going, but it's, it's fun. Uh, we put on our shoes when it's time to go to work, right? Think about when your shoes are off. It's typically when you want to relax. When you want to relax, you find a comfy place to sit. You sit down, you take your, off your shoes, and you put your feet up. And... It's just, it's a common aspect. I don't know what your house is like in our house. Um, you know, we can leave your shoes on if you want, but we, we tend to go shoeless. When we're at home, when we're relaxed, when we're comfortable. But then it's time to go work. You go do a project in the garage or in the basement. You're going to go uh, um, out for an errand. What's one of the first things you do? You get up and you put your shoes on. You go and you get ready for the task at hand. Without our shoes, we're not ready go and work each task requires different shoes and and putting christ on and, and, and serving him the shoes that we need is, is the shoes of readiness 
See, when we're in battle, one thing, if you were at the front lines of battle, one of the things they would teach you is to sleep with your boots on. It's to be ready to go at any moment of attack. In the same way that, that a firefighter has um, their whole getup all ready to go, at a moment's notice, they can be fully clothed in all their fire gear. They're ready for it. There's a readiness to act when needed. First of all, if we realize and acknowledge that, that we're in a battle, that we're wrestling against uh, the devil, against uh, uh, his schemes, I don't think we'd be as put off when all of a sudden we see an attack come or, or an opportunity to, to go and be ready with the gospel. But instead, if we sleep with our boots on, if we're ready to share the gospel at any moment and share the peace that is found in knowing Jesus, yeah, it'd be a different world. And it catches you off guard. I get that. Opportunities to share Jesus typically come, I've seen time and time again, at some of the most inopportune times. And I think part of that is because we don't have our shoes of readiness on. I went to Meyer yesterday with my wife and my kids to do some grocery shopping. And, and, and you know, I don't know how long we were there, half hour, an hour, probably more like an hour. Um, ran into three different people that we know. Uh, one was a, a friend of a friend from some old relationships. Uh, the other one was a friend from church. And then the other one was one of my wife's coworkers that I didn't know and got a chance to meet. And, you know, each time paused and had a conversation, entered in, into, you know, relationship, getting to know one another. And then on top of that, um, we, we had all our stuff out on the conveyor belt. Two things out of the whole cart. Actually, have, you know, we usually do two shopping carts because we've got the two girls and that way we can contain them. I used to always wonder why do so many parents use strollers until I realized it's not so the kids don't have to walk, it's so that you don't have to chase them. Um, so we had all the stuff on the conveyor belt. And um, she rang two things up, and then all the bleeps in the building stopped. From the ch- self-checkout all the way down the line, uh, on a Saturday afternoon, every single computer shut down. And it took about mm, seven to ten minutes to get back up. And it's one of those things where, what are you going to do? You know, you're just going to walk out of there and go to another store and take all the time to get all the groceries you need, and then you can whine about, oh, it's cheaper at Meyer, it's cheaper there, whatever, you know, um, or i got to deal. You're not going to do it. You're just going to stand there and wait and see if it all fixes itself. And that's what we did. And so I had about like seven, ten minutes to just stand talking to this cashier. And there's a great opportunity to share Christ with her. And I'm not saying that every moment there's a, there's a lull in the conversation. You need to say, can I tell you about Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus? But we can at least say, I would love that opportunity someday. So can I build a relationship with you? Can I build trust with you so that you would give me the opportunity to just tell you why I follow Jesus? Can I share a little bit of my life with you? I think when we have the shoes of readiness on, we see those opportunities for what they are, and we take them. We run to them. So let's be ready to share the peace that we have in God. And I know this happens at times when we're just not ready for it. I know it can happen at times where our own lives are a mess, our own lives are in trials and going through storms. But even in the darkest and strongest storm, God is still immovable. I mean, there's, there's so much peace to be found in that. So even in the chaos of life, we can find peace in God and be fitted with the readiness uh, of the gospel to go and share that with others. So we've got the belt of truth, the chest plate of righteousness. We've got the shoes of readiness. Uh, then we also pick up the shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming darts. And the, it could also be translated, translated as arrows from, us, from Satan. So basically the devil attacks us. What, what's he, what else does he attack us with? He attacks us with condemnation. Oh no, you're not good enough. God can't love you anymore for what you've done. But that's not true. 
as Gary so well put when we were worshiping together, God's love never fails. And in faith, it, we pick up this, this shield of faith of saying, no, I, I believe God's promises. That he says he loves me. He says he has a plan for my life. That he's doing a work in my life to bring about redemption. I believe all that. Romans 10, 17 says, what would teach us that faith comes through hearing. The hearing of God's word and the doing. And we've got to ask ourselves to pick up the shield of faith. Are, are we having times where we're hearing the word of God? This isn't just something as simple as, okay, someone read, read this to me, um, and that can be a part of it. But are you engaging in conversation about God's word with other people? Are you listening uh, to, to different studies, whether it be a Bible study or, or you know, uh, find another preacher online? We have our sermons online. Uh, find a Bible study, get involved in some kind of fellowship or relationship where the Word of God is a piece of your conversation. And again, I'm not saying it has to be all that we talk about, but part of that picking up our shield is, is listening to the Word of God, the shield of faith. We get the helmet of salvation. Has anybody ever had a concussion before? Uh, fortunately, you know, not, I, I haven't had one yet. I haven't had one, but I've been around people when they've happened. And, and there's really two people in my life that I can think of who've had multiple ones that I, I've at least witnessed. Now, I wasn't the culprit, but I, I witnessed them. And if you've ever seen someone get a concussion, they don't quite know what's going on. And, and I don't know if they even really realize all that. There's this, this, this haze, this fog going on, and they're not themselves. And sometimes it's kind of hilarious as long as they're not you know, physically in trouble. Um, but other times, I mean, it's a serious matter. One, one, my, my one friend in particular has had so many concussions that, you know, aside from tying her shoes, I mean, anything else more strenuous than that, she has to wear a helmet. You know, otherwise, she could risk another concussion and, and there'd be some uh, physical damage that could come from that. But when we take a hit to the head, it throws us off of who we really are. So when our way of thinking is attacked, is distorted, isn't in line with how God would have us uh, see the world and, and think about things, all of a sudden we're not living in the reality of who we are. We're in a haze, we're in a fog. So a helmet of salvation guards our mind. See, apart from Jesus, apart from salvation, we're dead, we're in sin, we're in transgression. But in salvation, in being saved by grace th through faith, we're forgiven, we're renewed, and there's a renewing of our minds as well that takes place. So we need to think differently about the world. We need to see the world through God's eyes. And there's ways that we don't. And so when we put on the helmet of salvation, we're saying, I want, I want to guard my mind, I want to guard the way that I'm thinking about things and the way that I see the world. I want God to renew my mind. So let's put on the helmet of salvation. And then finally, we need to pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he came back with Scripture. He said, you can tell me this, but I know what the Word of God says. Do we know what God's Word says about the battles that we're facing in our life right now? Or are we walking in there all suited up with no offense? And this is where the offense comes in. All right, well, Satan's telling me this. What do I say? What's my offense? Well, let's look into God's Word. Well, Satan's telling me to go do this. Here's what I'm feeling tempted to do. What should I do? Well, what does God's Word say about that? Pick up the sword of the Spirit. Let's arm ourselves with that. As long as we remember, our enemy is not those who think differently. It's not those who don't know Jesus. Our enemy is Satan. It's the devil. Can I close out 
closes out this, this line, okay, put on all these different things. And it says, praying at all times. And there's a sense of, if you think of the, the essential aspect of lines of communication in, in battle, in the same way for us. We need to, in prayer, stay connected to God throughout the day. We would also see in Scripture a call to, to pray at all times of all things. Close out with this, Ephesians 6, second half of verse 18 and on. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praying for all the saints is what he's saying here. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Basically, Paul's saying, hey, and, and as you're getting suited up, pray for me, pray for the other saints. You know why he's saying that? Well, one, is because we're not alone in this. And when we spend time praying about others, we're reminded that we're not alone in this. And that's significant. Because when we begin to feel alone in these battles, our morale goes down. We begin to say, is it really worth it? Is this really true? We begin to not only put down our sword, we begin to put down our shield and say, well, does God really love me? But if we acknowledge that, no, I'm not alone in this. We have brothers and sisters who can remind us, God is faithful. God does love you. Oh, that's right. There is a security in this shield. And so I'm going to hold on to my shield of faith. I'm going to keep on the helmet of salvation. I'm going to keep on the armor of God. We need to remember we're not alone in this. Kind of in closing, Paul's just been hitting on this heart of standing firm. Persevere. When we get dressed, ready to work, when we put Christ first, we stand firm in Christ. That enables us to stand firm in our marriages for those who are married. That enables us to stand firm in our present celibacy for those who aren't married. That enables us to stand firm in our parenting as mothers and fathers. That enables us to stand firm as siblings, as family members. That enables us to stand firm as community members, as friends, as co-workers, as whatever other identifier we want to put in there. When we put Christ first and submit to His authority, helps us to stand firm in all other aspects of life. Let's pray. Father God, you are a great and glorious God, and we just thank you for Paul's words in, in Ephesians and that you inspired them, Father God. We thank you that they're so useful for life. We just pray that we would be able to put on the full armor of God each and every day and to leave it on, Father God. And not just the defensive aspects, but also we pick up the, the sword of the Spirit, your word, Father God. We'd use it to fight against the temptations that the evil one would send our way. That it could be found in you, built up in you, Father God. Forgiven and being perfected as a saint. We love you, Father. In your name, amen.